0: Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about this sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. I'm going to pray for us because I, I think that the book of Revelation does something in our hearts that if you are aware of this, if you're, if you're at all, even, even partly spiritually aware of God's presence, and you say, I, I don't know if I've ever experienced God's presence in a real way, but you're aware when God is doing something in the world, when, when beauty is kind of drawing you in, when love is changing your heart, when you're becoming different than you were the day before, this is God acting. If you're aware, I think that what we talk about tonight actually will catapults you into a deeper awareness. Does that make sense? And it changes things. It changes your life. So that's what I've been praying for. I don't, I don't want to do this if it doesn't result in life change. So let's pray together. So God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful book called Revelation. There's been lots of ways that this book has been read and we just want to read it honestly, how it was intended to be read. And may the life change come forth and may we honor you more tomorrow than we did today. And may a deeper relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in this series, All I Do Is Win. And by the way, I've had plenty of people ask, when are you going to play this song? All I do is win, win. I, like, have you listened to the lyrics? There's only that one part that, okay, so we're not, I don't know if we'll ever play the song, but the the gist is, Jesus keeps winning, okay? So I just thought I'd put that out there. If you keep asking, where are you going to play? I don't know, play it in your car. But uh, to roll up the windows and like drive a little bit past you know Highland Square, whenever you do it. Okay, so this is, this is what we're in. Because the idea is this. The book of Revelation has been interpreted so many bizarre, different ways. But one thing is clear. And, and I would argue this one thing that's clear is the prevailing theme of Revelation. All Jesus does in this world is win even when it doesn't feel like he's winning. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The book of Revelation has, <coughs> excuse me, some imagery in it that you need to know. Revelation, if you remember the first week, we're in week five. If you remember the first week, talk about the literary genre, the, the, the genre it belongs to, which means the type of literature it is, is really, really important. If it was a narrative meant to be taken literal, well, then we would like we would be expecting some really bizarre things to happen. However, if it is a different type of genre that is speaking to us, the illustration I used before was when the psalmist says, uh, the earth is God's footstool. You don't actually think that God has talons wrapped around the earth, you know? Like, that is a weird, but what it tells you is that God is over the earth. No problem. No questions asked. That's poetry. It speaks to you this way, okay? Okay? speaks to you this way uh Re- the book of revelation is apocalyptic literature which does not mean end time literature that's not the genre apocalypse means the unveiling is actually what it means now does it have to do with the end times yeah but even to say end times is a little bit bizarre because it's the it's when when jesus kind of establishes ultimate victory okay it's not like things just blow up and end and we're like what happens now it's like no, things kind of just got started the way we wanted them to start forever and ever and ever, okay? So when we talk about apocalyptic literature, it's the unveiling. And apocalyptic literature was image-heavy, used images to get points across. Now, we do this, too. I want you to think of political t- cartoons, okay? Okay. That, that this political cartoon up here, if I were to tell you, if I were to say, "Hey, I was praying one day," and I saw a, a, a donkey with a bunch of fingers out of the nose and everything, a bunch of fingers pointing at an elephant with a bunch of fingers pointing back and forth, and I were to see and I were to say that, and we wrote it down, and 2,000 years from now, someone goes, "Oh goodness, uh, at some point there's going to be a giant donkey with fingers coming out, or a machine like that, and they try to interpret how bizarre." What, what this tells us is there's a lot of division. There's a lot of people pointing the finger at one another, right? That's what this shows us. We use this all the time. Image, images get across points more than just words in incredible ways. Artists do this. Poets do this. We do this with political cartoons. So I don't want you to jump into Revelation with this filter that says, everything is absolutely literal as if it was a narrative. This is image heavy. It's telling us things that are happening then and there, that are happening here and now, and things that will happen. And we have to be diligent in knowing what are we reading, okay? It's apocalyptic literature. That makes sense? So whenever you see an image like this, your mind doesn't go straight to Preston's crazy. Maybe it does, I don't know. But like this is, most of you would think, okay, I get what it's saying. There's the pointing of finger, one side versus the other. I understand that. So what we're going to read tonight has images like this. Okay, throw that next one up. Four horsemen. A white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. Four horsemen. Each of the riders of the horsemen are four horses and then four horsemen. Each of the riders, each of the horsemen, have different jobs. And you go, it, it feels very strange but when we read it in light of what it would have meant back then and there it brings light to everything and that's what i when i say it's life changing if what Reve- if revelation chapter 6 what we're going to read tonight is actually true it's a game changer it's kind of like a game over game changer in a lot of ways okay so let's jump into the text okay so this is the image and let's jump into the text revelation chapter 6 Verse 1 and 2. Now, remember, last week, Jay talked a lot about, um, the, well, it was all about the lamb sitting on the throne, the throne room of God. Okay. In Revelation, there's a part where, where Jesus is referred to as a lion, and then the rest of Revelation he's referred to as a lamb. It's as if John continually says, he is the lamb seated on the throne. He is winning in a way that we never expected him to win before. The lamb, the lamb, the lamb. In fact, even John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John will talk about this. He would hear of a conquering king and he would see a lamb slain. Okay. In fact, go back to that picture before, if you can real quick. In this, you can't see up here, but there's a lamb. And in this picture, this famous picture of the four horsemen, this lamb... And the word of life, this is the, the word, because Jesus is referred to as the word of life, the lamb, all these sorts of things. So now let's keep going. So I'm going to emphasize the lamb. I watched as the lamb opened. So this is Jesus is the only one who's a, who has the power to open the seals. What the seals represent is kind of the unfolding of history. So you can think of it that way. It's the unfolding, okay? He's the only one with the authority to open the unfolding of what is currently taking place. Now, what's going to keep taking place? He's the only one with the authority to do that. And the way he's referred to is he's the lamb that does it. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, this is Old Testament language going back to Joel where we know that conquerors were given a crown before they would even go conquer, because that's what they did. That meant you will conquer. So this is Old Testament language. Let's keep going. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now what it starts to feel like is... Okay, like are we, are we talking about that like all these things are going to take place, have taken place? Remember, John's talking to seven churches. He's talking to seven churches. And what you'll find is history has a tendency to repeat itself. Okay, let's keep going. When the Lamb opened the third seal... The lamb. So this is the peaceful lamb, the one who conquers his enemies by sacrificial love. This is the one. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine, which was referring to as famine here. So this horseman, it's like in the hands of this horseman, there's famine. Okay, let's keep going. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth. So uh, remember the unfolding of time. The unfolding, the plan of history. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. Now, if this was literal, I don't know how big this horse would be. I don't actually know how Hades would follow behind him. You hand this to Disney, they're going to do a lot of crazy stuff with this, okay? It would make a great roller coaster, whatever is going on here. Besides that, the imagery that you draw from this is telling you something in the same way that the imagery that I showed you of the uh, elephant and the donkey is telling you something. It's telling it's unveiling. It's as if you're looking from heaven's perspective and they're going, look at what's going on in the world and what will happen, They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay? I want to read to you a little bit more. This is in verse 6. The fifth seal. I'm going to read this to you. So if you don't have your Bible, you can close your eyes and you can picture this. The fifth seal. When when, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, For the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on uh, each who dwell on the earth. Now I want you to, to see what happens, what the lamb does. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and the slave and the free hid themselves in caves, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us for the, uh, from the wrath. Uh, we, we need to be saved from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? This is a bizarre, bizarre story. Super strange in a lot of different ways here, here's what I would want us to look at. This is telling us what has happened and will happen, but it's not in the way that you think. It's not in the way that in the last day, whatever the last day would be. It's not the way that we would go in the last day, there's going to be these horrors. It's talking about history, okay? So I want to ask this question with you. Does history repeat itself, okay? Does history repeat itself? Now let's walk through this together. Because you've probably heard, if you don't know history, you're bound to... Repeat it. Maybe you haven't heard that. Okay, but you're bound to repeat history. Let's let's go through the, the four horses. Ready? White horse. This is conquest by horse, by force. This 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 horse it represents conquest. Okay, this is what this was. So this is conquest. Take over. This is what you see all nations trying to do to one another. We want more land. We want more people. We want more. We want a conquest. This is what we start to do to ourselves, okay? We need more. We need to conquer more. This is conquest, white horse. And, and you say, how do you know? Because it said in the verse, conquest, okay? This is what the horse represents. Let's go to the next one. Red horse is war. This is the horse with the bow. This this represents war. All throughout the Old Testament, we see imagery paralleling the red horse, and this is war. This horse gallops into war causes war, causes strife among people. And I want you to think about, think about for a second, what starts wars? Okay? What starts wars? Is it the love of Christ that comes forth and we say, we must fight and kill our enemies? Does that start wars? Or is that completely opposite? What starts wars is two competing narratives about what needs to happen in two people groups or people who can't love even their enemies. What stops wars would be following Jesus. What starts wars would be those things, okay? This is war, the red horse. Let's keep going. The black horse is famine. Famine is what, I mean, in in the to say you can have this much barley for a day's wages is to say you're going to spend your entire day's wages on just enough to eat. You need to hold on to it. This is famine. Scarcity mindset. This is the mindset that happens to people and people groups and nations. This is what's implemented into people is that you'll never have enough. So go after and, and hoard for yourself. Right? This is famine. Let's go to the last one. The pale horse is death. Okay, death, which well, is how do you know? Because death, they, like it said, this horse is death. Hades follows it. White horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse. All these horses, all these horses, it tells us what they represent. In the time that this was written, with under, under the persecution of Rome, what we find is all this is taking place. And what we find is this repeats itself. This repeats itself in in people groups and in nations and the systems and individuals. This repeats itself, okay? I don't read this, and in fact, the the people that were reading, the theologians that are speaking on this text, don't read this that one day there's going to be out of the north or the west or the south, that there's actually going to be this giant horse coming like that. In the same way, you wouldn't read the imagery like that. What it's telling you is that history, that there's these horses galloping through history that are creating these same processes. And if you notice, if you were to study any era of history, you'll find conquest by force, war, famine, scarcity mindset, and death. And this continues to repeat itself. There's a theologian and an author named Brian Zond. This is what he says. About these horsemen. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that keep galloping across history. The white horse of conquest, followed by the red horse of war, followed by the black horse of famine, followed by the pale horse of death. Put it on repeat and you have world history. Jesus is the king who comes to save humanity from the stupid cycle of conquest, war, famine, and death. And if you notice, the Jews tried to put Jesus on these horses. You know, the Jews tried to say like, hey, let's, we want to crown you as king and we want you to reign over the Romans in the way we want that to happen. And every time they did that, Jesus would flee. He doesn't ride these horses. He's the lamb. He's not a horseman. He's the one that as history repeats itself, he's still powerful over history. He's still the one who's in charge of history. So follow me here. As history repeats itself, some Some people have participated so strongly in breaking these systems. You have people like Martin Luther King Jr. that participate so strongly in breaking the systems of taking over people's lives, of abusing them, of pointing the finger, that they in following Jesus, he broke the system so strong in following Jesus, the lamb, and did so as someone praying and dying for their enemies, right? Because history repeats itself. And what I want, To point out to you is is if you're at a point that you say there's a major dilemma in my neighborhood or in my community or in the city that God's calling me to take on, don't do it alone. Let us back you as you follow Jesus and you follow the lamb and you sacrificially lay down your life to break the system, the system, the horses that gallop through history. But on a personal level, on a personal level, these things happen all the time. You Think about, in a relationship, you go after someone, if there's a war that breaks out, you feel like I don't, I'm alone, I don't have anyone, you feel dead inside. On a relational level, these things happen. In a career, you change your career. You go after a career, you go strong after a career, and then there's something that happens to you, the boss, the coworkers, whatever, something happens, you run out of money, there's death inside. The cycle These horses gallop all the time. History repeats itself. The world we're wanting doesn't have these horses. These horses die. What you find is Jesus does win. These horses don't have a place in the new heavens, new earth. But history repeats itself. Here's what I would ask you. In your life, which horse do you ride, essentially? Which horse do you say, I am participating actively in that part of history? Because what I can show you is through the centuries, I can show you through the systems and the cities, individually, but I can't tell you which one you're on. I can't tell you which, but I can tell you, they don't win. <laughs> they don't win in the end. This has never won. There has never been an era in which this has resulted in the benefit of humanity and everybody following Jesus. This is never one. But the lamb is the one overseeing history. And I just want to point out the lamb is there watching. So let's, history repeats itself. Now here's the next question. Does history have to repeat itself? Okay. Does this have to take place? Let's talk about this essentially what I'm asking is this, is life a glorified monopoly game? That at the end of it, everything goes back in the box. You just put it all back in the box, you win some, you lose some, and that's what life is. I don't think that's the case. In fact, if that were the case, we would participate in history in this way. If that were the case, we would let this happen. Now, we do this on a regular basis because of this scarcity mindset. Because when we have a mindset that says, this is the only life there is. I must get everything I can in this life. I must conquer as much as I can. I must have as many relationships as I can. I must, I'm going to go at war because if you don't like me, this is the only life I have. And you're compromising my identity. So you, you understand what I'm saying? Scarcity mindset, famine mindset, all of this comes from a scarcity mindset. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the Message Bible, he says the scarcity mindset is behind every single system and satanic way of thinking, the scarcity mindset. Because it says this is the only world we have. This is it. And if you watch, people who think this is the only world we have ride the four horses, okay? What I want to point out to you is, uh, what the question I want to ask is, does history have to repeat itself with you? Does it have to? I would say no. And I would say because we have w- many ways that Jesus applies against this, But do you remember this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish? I don't know if you remember that story. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus takes a few loaves, a few fish, and he multiplies it. So the disciples go to Jesus and they say, hey, w- w- you know, we don't, we don't have enough to feed these people. And Jesus says, well, what do we have? And then this boy offers up his lunch, and then he multiplies it. And he feeds 5,000 men. So we don't know into over 10,000 people total if there's women and children there. So he's feeding these people. And what we see happen there is people turn to Jesus and go, there's not enough for life. There's not enough. What do we do? And Jesus provides, okay? This is what Jesus does is he provides. And what's really fascinating Is the crowd goes after Jesus in order to crown him and make him king in the way they want him to be king. Now, the the crown that he was willing to wear was the crown that the enemies put on him when he died for them. Because he knows love can conquer their heart. More war is not gonna do it. Love can do it. So that he refuses the crown that the Jews want to place on him. Refuses. He flees to a ship, to a boat. He flees. And then he tells them later on, they go, why did you do that? And he says, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's not life. I offer what's eternal because people operate on a scarcity mindset. This is all they have. This is all they work for. So they don't live generously. They don't give up their time. They hoard. They do anything they can to feel pleasure because it's them and that's it. And Jesus is saying, That's not how we win. There's a whole nother world. And in this story, this is what we see. History doesn't have to repeat itself. You find the people that follow Jesus, other than Judas, okay, you find the people that follow Jesus give of their lives because they're fully convinced their life is not all that there is. They're convinced of this. They're convinced that there is more to it. And what the old saying is for the church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more people are martyred, the faster the church grew. And we know this to be true. This is one of the phenomenons behind the church, is the more they tried to kill the church off, the faster it grew. What you, in in all of this, none of the people who are martyrs thought that this life was all that they had. Now, I want to be honest with you. I have to remind myself, so even in studying for Revelation 6, I have to remind myself. Preston, do you think, even though you know up here, has the truth made its way down here, that everything you have in this life, everything that you have in this life, will go away except for the things that are eternal, relationships and life with God? Are you convinced of this? Now, I want to confess to you, the journey from here to here a very, 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 very long journey. It's like a never-ending staircase. If you can follow the Jesus who multiplies little in order to provide, if you can follow this Jesus, uh, he may ask you for your life. He may ask you to move. He may ask you to give. In fact, he will ask you to give of your time, to give of yourself. He may ask you to take care of your neighbor's kids because your neighbor can't even make enough money to make ends meet. He may ask you to adopt. He may ask you to be more passionate about the poor. He may ask you to plant a church, to start a faith community. But he's doing this because these things last forever. And everything else that you have that's consuming your time, the reason you would say no to these things, doesn't last forever. The scarcity mindset drives the horseman. History repeats itself. And it will continue to repeat itself. Unless there are people that look to the lamb who's in charge of all of the scrolls and this is what he tells them, because there were a group of, the, uh, whenever he said the fifth scroll was opened up, and there was a, um, and and the souls looked up to Jesus, those who were martyred for the faith, and said, how long? And notice what he does is he says, rest a little longer, and he gives them a white robe. Well, right, white robe would be clothing them in royalty, saying, you belong to me. You belong to me. I'm the one in charge. But notice what they do. They look to him. They don't look they look to him for the answer. They look to him. So the ones who said, I gave you my life. And he says, yes, rest. And he says, you are in the royal family that wins. I'm still the king. Okay? And the brokenness of the world, you're not to escape the brokenness of the world. You are to actively participate in the king and following his orders when the world's broken. So we're on a mission here. So the lamb gives orders. And when we're so despaired, we say, I don't think I can make it. We can, we can think about the fifth scroll. We can think about the fifth seal. And we can think about the, the souls that would cry up and say, I gave everything. And he says, rest a little longer. your royalty. You're with me. I conquer. I win. All I do is win. But I don't win this way. In fact, I'll conquer those people. I win in a different way rest a little longer. If you are on the verge of just breaking, you say, I've followed Jesus for so long, or you just follow Jesus for like, I don't know, you started in worship song number three. You, you follow and you go, and I'm on the verge. It's just so hard. It's so countercultural. He asked so much of me. Yeah, but it's because the things that have a hold of you don't last. See, his, it's the apocalypse perspective. He has the eternal perspective. He's not the lamb that just knows the story of the earth. He, this is the story of eternity. He has the eternal perspective. And he knows what, you don't, what you're not able to wrap your mind around is the things of these wor- of this world go away. And he's saying, invest, give your life to the things that last forever. Give your life. And when you feel on the verge, rest, rest. Don't leave. Rest. And look to him and he clothes you. You're on the right team. Okay? Does history have to repeat itself? Well, here's the last question. Do we have to wait until the end to see things change? Do we have to wait until the end to see things change? You know, when we were, uh, Lisa and I went on a cruise with our family about 35 family members, okay? And there I didn't feel like there was war or famine. I mean, it was it was pretty fun. So, either we were all fake or we were being genuine and we loved each other. It was one of the two and uh it, we had a good time. It was really fun. One of the things that was interesting though is uh we were talking, there was a waiter that came up and started talking to us about God. So, my dad was at the table, my dad brought up uh, living for things that are eternal. He brought this up and started talking to the waiter about it. Well, the waiter says, oh, the Bible, I've read the Bible. To which I'm always really interested whenever people want to talk theology, but then at the same time, there's a point, I just want to listen. So my mom, she says, Preston, come up here. He's read the Bible. And I said, no, I'm I'm fine. I just I just want to listen. I just want to listen and eat my pizza. So he's the waiter's talking, and he says, where do you guys think heaven is? You know, and and at this table, like I said, there's 35, not all 35 people are there. So there's a few people of the 35 at the table. And one person says, you know, it's elsewhere and whatever. And I said, I think it's actually like a dimension around us. It's participating. And then uh, there's an individual that said, starts talking end time stuff. And that, that then said, in the end, this is how it's going to happen. Jesus is going to reign for. A millennium, uh, and then we're going to reign with him, and and on and on and on, and and with such certainty, someone is saying this, and and the guy who read the Bible, he said something along the lines of, you know, I've read Revelation, and I just don't see it happening that way because I've read the whole Bible and Revelation. I think the kingdom of God, is in us now. Like essentially, what he's saying is what we're talking about. We we can win now. We don't have to wait till the last day. Do we have to wait until the end to see things change? No. And I'm going honestly, Mr. waiter here, his name's Anthony. Anthony knows more theology than most of the table just by saying what he said. We don't have to wait till the end to reign with Christ. Things can change now. And 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 this is what I would say. If that's not true, if things can't change now, we're all doomed the earth is doomed, and we might as well jump ship. Because if if we have to wait till the end, we'll have no power to wait till the end. We won't be able to rally behind any sort of mission. If we're just in a waiting game of patiently, okay, come Jesus at some point, we're not in that game. See, Jesus breaks the cycle with his life. And when you participate in a Jesus following life, You break the cycle. The cycle of history will continue to repeat itself, and you can see blips on the map of people who have followed Jesus and broken the satanic cycles that we would say have held us captive. People that have followed Jesus to do that. That's one of the strongest testimonies, and one of the ones that hurts us the most, is when we say the people who have followed Jesus that have abolished slavery, people who have followed Jesus that have done everything they could to break apart racism and to unite all races in the world, the people who are fighting for the lives of the unborn children, the people who are doing these for the people who are doing this, they're following Jesus and doing this in a lamb-like way. They're breaking the system, and there's also people on the other side. There are people who claim to follow Jesus, but they ride every one of the horses. They conquest, They they are forceful, they cause wars, they don't care about famine, they take, 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 and then they honestly don't care about the lives of their enemy. I was watching a debate between a guy named Frank Turek and Richard Dawkins, and they were going back and forth, and what uh, what Dawkins kept going back to, who's an atheist, was, yes, but all the monstrosities that have been done in the name of religion. If you're going to follow Jesus, history needs you to follow Jesus, okay? Not to follow who you think Jesus should be, but to follow the Lamb. It's very specific. Follow the Lamb who's going to ask your life of you. And in doing so, you will be giving your life to the things that are eternal. I don't know how else to put it. When we don't do that, when we don't go all in with the Lamb, and we have different lords, different things that we follow, but on a Sunday night we're all in, but on Monday morning we're out. It is the most confusing and disorienting thing to the world, and we lose credibility, and we lose traction, and we lose authority, okay? Um, Lisa, if you can come up with the the worship team. I'm going to read you this quote by a guy named Rodney Stark. So this is, we don't have to wait till the end for things to change. Here's what he says. Christianity is what Christianity has done. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships. Now follow me here. Able to cope with many urgent urban problems. So Christianity, true Jesus following people, have a history of, of breaking the cycle. They break the cycle, okay? And they participate now in the victory in a lamb-like way. So they have, and, uh, they, they have a way of doing this to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments to cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family to cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity and to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective Nursing services. We don't have to repeat history. We don't have to. But we've got to be all in if we're going to see things change. I, when we were at the airport yesterday, I don't, I don't want this to offend you. If, you're, if you are a cop, I appreciate you very much. I'm, not, I'm, I'm making light of the situation. When we were at the airport, we saw a cop that was on a Segway, okay, that was riding on a Segway, but trying to kind of pull over trucks and SUVs. And I don't know, for some reason, it's really funny to Lisa and I. So we're we're watching this cop and, and telling this, you just see him trying to pull these vehicles, these big vehicles over, but the dude's on a Segway. So I, I took a video because I thought it was so funny. Okay. It should play if you hit next. Does it not play? There it is. Okay. So I don't know if he's telling his mom, mom, nobody's listening to me anymore. I'm trying to pull him over. Hold on, mom. Right. So he's over here. So he's trying to do this, and he's on a Segway, and I'm watching this, going, I don't, "If you're in an SUV, they're gonna listen. For some reason, you on a Segway is just—it's hard to take you seriously, right? Because when I go over five miles an hour, I'm—it's over. I win, right? This is—I don't know how fast Segways go. So we're watching this, and uh, and it reminds me, honestly, of of how Christians will say. Yeah, we're all in. We follow Jesus. We do this thing. And then, but it's like we're riding. It's like we say we have the authority of Jesus, but we ride on a Segway in the middle of a bunch of SUVs and trucks. And we don't actually take on the real authority of the Lamb. What we're doing is we're just acting. It's superficial lip service. And we're getting frustrated. Things aren't changing. Things aren't changing. But here's the truth. Things aren't changing because we're not changing. Uh, Things will only change in the world when people change in the world. And the only way real people change in the world for the kingdom of God is by the authority of the lamb and by by participating in the fifth seal of crying out to the throne and saying, I don't know, it's really, really hard. And letting him clothe us in royalty and we keep following that king. We keep following that as a king. We get brokenhearted for the things that break God's heart. And we stop getting brokenhearted over the stupid things of the world. So here's what I would say uh, about this whole passage. As history unfolds, it will repeat itself, but you don't have to participate in the corrupt repetition. You have a different place. The world will never change as long as we act like we have, an authority, have authority on a segue, getting frustrated all the time because nothing's happening. The world's not going to change. The world's going to change when we actually look to how Jesus is winning. And he's winning by people, martyrs, giving their lives, giving their lives for the people who kill them. And that, that's, that's as intense as it gets, and I'm not saying that you have to have a spear go through your side in the Amazon to be all in, but I am saying we need to get to the point to where we're willing to do those sorts of things, you see, that we give up what has a hold of us for the sake of others. This to me, this is why I said Revelation chapter 6 is a game changer because it shows How history repeats itself. And then it also shows the way to break that. Because in the end, there will be all the kings and rulers, the authorities, right? It says all the ones that you thought were powerful, the SUVs and the trucks of the world, all those ones are going to see the lamb and run. Because the lamb's way of winning is they don't know how to participate in this. In fact, their life has been the complete opposite of his life, and it scares them, and they hide, and they cry out to the rocks, crush us, because we don't even know how to deal with him. But the people who gave their lives, they're they're not scared. They look for hope, and then they are clothed in royalty. So there will come a day, this is why I say Revelation does both, tells us of days to come and days of now. There will come a day when all the people you thought were the big, bad men and women in the world, cower at the sight of Jesus because of how he wins. Because he gave everything for them and they rejected him. But in that day, the people who gave everything for him rejoice with him. Because now they get to see and be with him forever. So can we stand together? I want to repeat, the world will not change if we do not change, okay? So if you're frustrated that the authority of Jesus, you feel like it has no, Jesus has no authority, well, I would ask you, are you all in? So this is what, we, what we're going to start with. What is Jesus asking of you now? You may not be at a place where you go, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a martyr. I would love to have a church full of people who say, we're willing to be martyrs if we have to be. But what I am saying is, what is Jesus asking now? You start to say yes, then it becomes easier and you trust him and you trust him and you build trust. The reason you can't say yes to being a martyr now, because you don't have enough trust built between you and Jesus yet, okay? I know I'm being extreme with martyr, but this is Revelation 6. So to get to where you're so all in that your life doesn't matter, what matters is everything eternal. To get there, you gotta start building trust. What is Jesus saying now? What is Jesus asking right now of you to do? And if you say nothing, you're not asking anything. Like I'm I, I don't believe you. What is he asking? What is he asking? Because he he wants you to live for what's eternal. Because he knows how short this life is. So bow your heads. We're gonna take a moment. Jesus, what are you asking of us now? Lamb of God, what are you asking of us now? For our spouse, for our friend, for the summer, for the rest of the year, what are you saying now? With our family, what are you asking of us now? this is how we're going to end tonight is I just want you because if everybody's being honest this would be every one of us I just want you to find someone or another or two or three people that you pray with that you say this is what the Lamb is asking of me now this is what he's asking of me and and I want you to realize how that breaks the cycle of history because it does Jesus is asking of you I just want you to pray with each other and worship with each other Okay? That's how we're going to, to engage tonight. So if you can go to, if you want to take communion, we take communion to remember that Jesus is the only one who gives life. We don't live with a scarcity mindset. So I would encourage you, if you're going to take communion, do it and then, and then get with one or two other people and say, this is what Jesus is asking of me. Can we pray about that? And then we'll worship and then we'll close. Okay? Lord, help us to be honest, speak clearly, and use your people to encourage us in the next step. Amen. Let's take communion, find someone and pray with them.